that uh, you need one to look at. You can keep it if you like. Uh, just raise your hand. One of the ushers will take care of you back there, and we'll be glad for you to have that. But uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's turn to the book of Haggai. I hope that uh, you have been enjoying our time through the Word of God together. When we started our church, we took the time to lay out a, a bunch of uh, concepts about starting a church and building a church, and then we, uh, we started to focus on the aspect of uh, really taking a church and uh, developing it. We talked about how that it was important for everybody to kind of get on the same page as far as the Bible's concerned, so <coughs> we uh, began a study coming through the whole Bible, laying everything out as far as uh, each book of the Bible, so you'd have a, an understanding of it and when we were finished, and yet we would have a record of it <coughs> long beyond <coughs> when we finished our study that you would be able to... Uh, go back or new people coming in would be able to have uh, the resources to really learn the Bible book by book uh, as far as giving you a cohesive understanding of it. And uh, last week, remember, we were in the book of Zephaniah. And the book of Zephaniah was a book that really focused on for us, you know, from a... And we've been looking at the Bible now, and I told you this when we started, how that the Bible has three distinct applications to it. The Bible will have a historical application. That means it's accurate in history. Bible is one of the greatest history books you'll ever find anywhere in the world. Then it also has a doctrinal application. That means it's a prophetic application. It has something to do with the end times and the second coming of Christ, which is the theme of the Bible, and Christ coming back to establish His kingdom. But we're living on the earth right now, so the Bible has a third application, and that is what we call the inspirational or the practical application, things that uh, the Bible teaches that really help you and I go through our daily lives and struggle with all the struggles that we have to deal with. And we have seen where in the books of the Minor Prophets last week in the book of Zephaniah, we saw how to build a lasting relationship with the Lord. And I showed you how that these smaller books really focus in on some issues that really are very important uh, for us in our individual lives, and it really lays them out. And today we're going to study the book of Haggai. And uh, now Haggai is very important because it's the last three books in your Old Testament. And because they are the last three books in the Old Testament, they form the last section of what is called the prophets. And these three books are important because, remember when we started laying all this thing out, we talked about how that uh, the Bible really, the Old Testament really breaks down into three concepts. The first concept would be what we call the, the uh, formulation of the nation of Israel. And I, I gave you this on New Year's Eve. That runs from Genesis up to the book of Joshua. And in that time period, we see the nation of Israel being formed. We see all of the concepts that bring about the nation of Israel as a nation. And then we have the establishment of the nation of Israel. That would bring us up through the book of Judges, <clears throat> right up through the book of Second Chronicles. And in, the book of, uh, in those books, we see Israel established. We see the kingdom under, under David and Solomon, and all the kings of Israel are listed out from there. And then we have the third period, which is commonly called the captivity. And the captivity is a time period that focuses on the nation of Israel's rejection of God, and then God 
bringing in the Gentile nations, and this is also called the times of the Gentiles. And that will basically bring us up through the prophets and the minor prophets, and that's basically how your Old Testament breaks down. Now, your last three books of the Bible are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, or sometimes called Malachi. And those last three books are all books that are written after the captivity. Remember now, we saw that all the prophets were written uh, either before the captivity, during the captivity, or after the captivity. And these last three books, starting with Haggai, this is why it's important. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all deal with the uh, post-captivity period, after Israel goes back. Now, you'll find that Haggai, and this is something you need to know, Haggai is written during the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Remember those books? Those books were the books that dealt with the... We studied those books when we first started our church. It was in those books that we saw the nation of Israel going back and beginning to rebuild and to reestablish the nation of Israel after the captivity. So you're going to find that these three books, as Haggai, go along with Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah. And they're written during that period of time. Remember from our study, just to kind of jog your memory, I told you that in 538 B.C., the Babylonians had been defeated now by Persia. And Persia was that great king kingdom under the king of Cyrus, king of Persia. And in 538 B.C., Cyrus, the king of Persia, issues a decree allowing the Jews to go back to the land after the 70 years' captivity. And they are allowed to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city of Jerusalem, which was destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar led his three phases of sieges. And we talked about that when we studied 2 Chronicles and uh, the book of Daniel and the book of Ezekiel. Now, <clears throat> the work is led by a man by the name of Zerubbabel. You'll find him in Haggai in chapter 1, verse 1. He's a governor. He's a Jewish man. You'll also find him in the book of Ezra. Remember now, when we come through those two books, I showed you how that Ezra is a book that focuses on the building of the temple, and Nehemiah is a book that focuses on the building of the city of Jerusalem. And Zerubbabel, as the leader, brings the people back, and uh, in 536 B.C., the work begins. And this will be the work that is covered, if you want to go back and look at it, in Ezra, Ezra chapter 4, 5, and 6. And then we know what happens, for we studied those books when we came through them in our course of the Bible, the opposition comes. And we studied how that that opposition is a picture of the opposition that you and I face when we try to do something meaningful and lasting for the Lord. We find out that they lied about them. We found out that they made false accusations to, to other people about them. We found out that they took half-truths and developed them into whole lies and concepts, all for the purpose of slandering the nation of Israel. You know the sins that God's people do so well today. And, and all of that thing is a picture of their struggle, is a picture of our struggle. Now, with all this pressure, and this is where the book of Haggai comes in, with all this pressure, with all the slander, with all the lies, with all the political intrigue that's going on during this time of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, and Esther, and uh, as I said, the book of Haggai really covers Ezra chapter 4, 5, and 6. It's the same time period. With all this pressure, the nation of Israel finds that it's easier to stop building the temple than finish building it. And so, uh, after 16 years of laboring to try to get this thing going and piddling around trying to build it and get it done, they stopped the process of the building of God's temple in God's city. 
and they begin to turn their attention to their own personal projects, and they leave God's project pretty much dead in the water. Now, that's basically the story of Haggai. And when you look at that book, that's what you need to know. Haggai has only got two chapters in it, and it's a real easy book to understand. If you just take what I just told you and put it someplace up in the top of your Bible there in your wide margin, it'll give you a little understanding that before you read it, you know, you want to read that so you understand what you're reading and then you understand better what you're looking for. So we see that the book of Haggai is basically a book that focuses on they start to build the temple of God and then they quit building the temple of God. And the breakdown is, is really pretty easy. Only two chapters, as I said. Chapter 1 really deals with a summons to build God's house. And chapter 2 deals with a summons to obey the commandments to build God's house because they quit. And as I said, the theme of this book is the building of God's house. I want to read for you Haggai chapter 1, verse 1 through 7, just to kind of set the stage here, and then we'll get into it from there. It says this. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, there he is, the son of Shetel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, It is time for you, O ye, to dwell in sealed houses, and this house lie waste, now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but are not, ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. And I ask you, to Father, today to step beyond just uh, the pages of this book. Lord, we understand that historically this great book focuses on a time when the nation of Israel, again, uh, turns their back on God and goes their own way. But, Lord, the lessons here are so incredible for us. We want to do what's right in these last days. I believe that every man and woman in this building that says, I'm a part of this church, I believe they're a part of this church because they want to do what's right they want to make their marriages right. They want to raise their families right. They want to honor their spouses right. They want to do everything that needs to be done the right way. They may not all know how to do it. There may be struggles and trials, but Lord, I believe deep down inside they want to accomplish what you want them to accomplish. Help us today to learn from this great little book the things that we need to see. And though these books may be small in chapter, dear Lord, they are great in concept and principles for our lives. So help us today to see it, and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for his sake we ask it. Amen. I don't know, you know, what your own relationship with the Word of God and the Lord's alike. I mean, I know most of you, are, if not all of you, are saved, and you really, uh, you really uh, want to build a relationship with God. But do you ever come to the place in your life where, and I don't even know how to say this, do you ever come to the place in your life where you just think about things? You know, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is found in Luke chapter 1, verse 19. And it's not a great doctrinal verse. It doesn't really, but it's just one of those verses that, to me, suggests where I'm at a lot with the Lord. And it's talking about Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was confronted with a lot of things. 
She was confronted with the fact that she was, hadn't known a man yet, but she's going to have a baby, and she was dealing with all of that, and angels were popping up in her kitchen showing her about all these great truths that were to come, and, and uh, needless to say, it was, I'm sure it was a shock to her system. Here's a woman, just an ordinary woman, and suddenly she's thrust into the biblical spotlight of visiting angels and hearing all these great decrees that she is going to be the one that brings forth the Savior of Israel, and I'm sure it was hard for her to grasp all of that, just like it is for us sometimes when we stand in awe of the Word of God and what God does. But that verse there in Luke chapter 2, verse 19, simply says this, but Mary kept all these things, kept in her heart, all the, uh, kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. She was thinking. And you know, I think the reason why people like the book of Psalms so much, I, they, most people don't even know this, but you know the book of Psalms is a, man, is a book about a man who's pondering things? It's a, it's a whole book is a man talking to himself. The book of Psalms is a man thinking about things in life and pondering them. And, and I look at it, you know, not even as a pastor, but as a Christian all my life, when I, when, I, when I grasped the concept of God that I couldn't understand, when I was faced with all the issues, you know, of dealing with people, when the aspect of the ministry and the Bible and how it all dovetails together and how people grow or don't grow, you know, so many times I've just sought and, and thought. I used to have a job that I drove like 250 miles a day, you know, and I, and I enjoyed that job because it gave me a lot of time to think while I was driving. But it's a, a, a pondering things. Do you ever wonder why things are the way that they are? I mean, stop and look. Take two, any two people. Take two people. Two saved people. And ask yourself why one makes it and the other one don't. Now, I wish, the truth of the matter is, I wish that everybody would make it. When I say make it, I mean not get swallowed back up with the world. I mean that a saved young man or a saved young lady or a mom and her dad would, when they got saved, that they would do what they need to do. They would build the relationship with God and the Word of God, that their life would only get better, stronger, closer to the Lord. Uh, but I know the reality that isn't going to happen. And I'm a people person. I may not always show it, but when somebody doesn't make it, it bothers me. It bothers me because of the fact that I want them to make it. It bothers me from the fact that I don't want to see anybody at the judgment seat of Christ lose the rewards that God has for them. And it bothers me that, that some people make it and some people don't. And I pondered that. I mean, you look at the fact that, that they're both saved by the same God. It isn't that one was saved by a greater God and one was saved by a lesser God? No, they're both saved by the same God. And you know what? The same Holy Spirit of God is inside of both of them. It wasn't the fact that, well, one got more of the Spirit of God than the other. No, no. The moment they got saved, they got saved by the same God, same God and they got the same Holy Spirit of God equal that everybody else got. They got the same measure of grace and the same measure of faith the Bible talks about. And yet, they, they all get the same teaching, so to speak, teaching about the Lord. I'm not, maybe it all wasn't perfect, but it certainly is enough for a young Christian to get them going. We can't make the argument, well, one was smarter than the other intellectually, because that has nothing to do with learning about God and the Bible. In fact, really, the dumber you are, the better you are. So that has nothing to do with it. We can't say, well, so-and-so had a better education, because education's got nothing to do with it. We can't say, well, you know what, <clears throat> this guy was raised in a Christian home, and this guy was raised in the world, so therefore, hey, that argument won't work. Hey, some of the strongest people I know, young men, 
didn't have a Christian home when they grew up. And some of the ones that did have a Christian home don't make it. It gets confusing. We can't blame it on that because the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. You can't blame anything on anything anymore once you get saved. It comes down to something I have to ponder all the time. Why does one make it? Why does one not? The book of Haggai answers that question. And it's the book of Haggai that really deals with the fundamental problem. Now, I know what the theological answer is. I mean, I read all the books, but I've read them years ago. I know what the theological answer should be. But you see, I want, I want to go beyond that. I'm not satisfied with just the norm. I want to look inside, and I want to find out what makes a man think one way versus what man, a man or a woman think the other way. And I want to look at the book of Haggai, and the book of Haggai really begins to answer this question. Now, we know from the first Corinthians, you don't have to turn here, you know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and also again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we talked about this Thursday night uh, a little bit, we know that those are the two great chapters in the New Testament on the judgment seat of Christ. Especially 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 16. There is no greater chapter in the Bible that probably says it clear. And we know that it says that once we get saved, verse 11 talks about the fact that the day we get saved, we lay a foundation in our life. And I know I'm not telling you nothing you don't know. I'm just building up to where I want to go here. I know this is old news to most of you. We know that verse 11, it talks about the fact that the day you got saved, you laid a foundation in your life. That foundation, the Bible says, is Jesus Christ. Then the Bible says in verse 9 that we're labors together. We're in this together. The Bible says in verse 9 that you and I are God's building. And this is where the book of Haggai begins to come in and answer some of these questions. We know that the Bible says that once you lay that foundation, that you build upon that foundation, uh, either gold, silver, precious stones, and we talked about that from a spiritual aspect, or wood, hay, and stubble. And we know that the Bible says that, that the day of the judgment seat of Christ, the day is, is going to declare it, and all of these things that we build upon this foundation are going to be tried by fire. The gold, the silver, and the precious stones, when you submit gold and silver to fire, all it does is purify all the impurities out of it. But the wood, hay, and stubble... The Bible says that represents the, the person that doesn't make it, where the gold, silver, and precious stones represent the person that does make it. Now, I'm not talking about getting saved, being saved. I'm talking about once you are saved, finding the will of God in your life and doing that, that you really become everything that God wants you to be, that when you stand in the judgment seat of Christ, God says to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You did exactly what I wanted you to do. You did exactly what I saved you for. You saw the big picture. You understood what life was all about. You found out where I, why I saved you and where I put you. You looked beyond yourself and found the real purpose and meaning in life. And now you're standing here giving me your life, now I'm going to give back to you an inheritance. We talked about that the other night, didn't we? And here lies the answer. The Bible says in verse 10 that, uh, this, that we are God's building and the foundation we get laid. Then it says this in verse 10, that we are to be a wise master builder and that we are to take heed how we build. And then this concept, these two concepts, a wise master builder and taking 
heed how you build, here lies the answer of why one makes it, why one doesn't, which is really typified in this great book of Haggai, even though it's only got two chapters. You know, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29, there's a story. And the story is the story all through the Bible. It's the story of a wise man and a foolish man. And you know what? From a practical aspect, really, the Bible really breaks down all the way through two kinds of people, a wise man and a foolish man. A wise man is someone who figures out God, what God wants him to do in his life or her life, and does it. The foolish man is someone who, who never does. And in that story, it talks about the wise man building his house upon a rock. And then it talks about the foolish man building his house upon the sand. And then a storm comes. And the Bible says that the storm, the wind blows, and, the, and all this is a picture of life. You know that. And the winds and the sand and the howling water and the rain and all the torrent that comes down is a picture of the things in life that we all have to go through. The one who built his house on a rock obviously is a wise master builder. He took heed how he built. The one who built it on the sand, the foolish man, is someone that was not a wise master builder. And in this little collective story here, we begin to see and understand why one makes it and why one doesn't. Why one Christian will wind up at the judgment seat of Christ with everything that God has for him. And by the way, that's my job. My job is only one thing. That is to teach you everything I can about God to be as honest as I know how to be with you and to put all the emphasis and all the focus on you and the Word of God and in your life because that's what's really going to matter. That's all that it is. You know, the longer I'm saved and the more I study and the closer I try to get to God, the more I realize how far I fall short of really what God is and how unlike we really are. I had a missionary friend one time. This is years ago. And this missionary guy told me, he says, you know what? He says, uh, he, says uh, I went, he was a doctor. And he said, I went into, he was in the Amazon someplace, and he said, you know, he said people were getting sick when they were drinking the water out of the stagnant uh, thing because, you know, and it had all kinds of diseases in it. And he said, I spent the longest time trying to get the chief to have him not drink the water. That we had to boil the water, and the, he just he couldn't see it. He, he went down there to the river, and he picked up a glass of water, and he says, hey, there, I was trying to tell him there's all kinds of stuff in his water. And he said, he picks up a glass and he holds it up and he said, no, no, missionary man, the water, nothing in the water. He says, well, I don't know what to do. He said, then I got an idea. I took a little bit of that water and put it on a microscopic slide and put it under my microscope and then had the chief come over. And when he looked down in there, he saw alien one, two, and three floating around in the water he was drinking. He said, and then I had another problem. He says, at first I couldn't get him to stop drinking the water. Now that he saw what was in it, I couldn't get him to drink it at all. You know what? That's what the Bible does for us. You see, we look good as we look at each other. But the Bible is a great book because the Bible is our microscope. The Bible lets us look beyond. You know, and I don't, I'm going to, you can put it in perspective now. You know, when you got saved, you want to know how you're growing spiritually? I'll tell you how you know. Just ask me. No. You want to know how you're growing spiritually? Here's how you know. When you got saved, there was some big thing in your life. I mean, there's some sin you're carrying on your back when you got saved. And I don't care what it is, and I don't know what it is. Maybe to you it was, you know, I don't know, maybe it was alcohol. Maybe it was, you know, uh, it doesn't matter what it is. But there was something in your life that God dealt with you on when you got saved. 
Maybe it was pride. Maybe it was money. Maybe it was this. Maybe it was that. I don't know. But there was something in your life that when you got saved, it was the thing that you struggled with and it was the thing that you had to deal with. Now you've been saved 10, 15, 20 years, 5 years, 10 years. And now the thing you struggle with is the fact that you didn't have time to read your Bible this morning before you went to work. Now the thing you struggle with is the fact that, man, I didn't, I, I got up late this morning, I didn't pray. You know what? When you got saved, you felt terrible about the sin in your life because God was dealing with you as an old-fashioned sinner. Twenty years later, five years later, ten years later, you get just as upset over not praying long enough, not getting to read your Bible, or something that we would look at and say, if that's the only problem you got, you don't have any problems. But you see the difference? To you it's a problem because God took you when you got saved and then cranked down the magnification. First year, he puts you under 20x magnification. Third year, 50x. Fourth year, 100x. By the time you're saved 5, 10 years, you're looking at your life through a 1,000x magnification, seeing all the cracks and crevices and all the, all the imperfections. When you got saved, it was a glaring sin. Five years, six years later, as you grow spiritually, it's the fact that I didn't pray this morning. It's the fact that I know how it is. If, if I get out of the house before I get to spend time in the Word of God in the morning, my day's ruined. I just can't get anything right. I mean, if I get up and get so busy, and it happens to everybody. We run out the door, you know, and we don't even think about God. And then later, it just, it really makes me feel bad because I forgot God. But you see, that's the difference. Man, when I first got saved, I wouldn't have felt bad about that. I was feeling bad about too many other things in my life. But you see, through the process and the magnification process, when we start out looking at glaring sins when we get saved, now we ought to be looking at the everyday Monday little things and making those things because they impact our relationship with Christ. James chapter 1, verse 22 through 25 talks about, Be ye not doers of the word, and, uh, be, or, but be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Then he says, For if any hearer of the word and not a doer, he is, a, he is like a... Uh, unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, word of God, and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, for this man shall be blessed in his deed. Now see, that's why men don't like the Bible. That's why people have an axe to grind with the word of God. That's why Christians love to go to church in churches that don't have to bring your Bible. That's why people love churches where they never really preach anything out of the Bible. Because we got a prejudice against that Bible because the Bible is like a natural looking glass. Now ladies, I must say, you all look really lovely today. You really do. Your hair's done nice. Your makeup, a little smeared, but it's okay. No, I'm kidding you. You really look nice. But you know what? Is that the way you really looked this morning when you got up? I don't think so. <laughs> Guys, what are you laughing for? You look like you just fell out of a tree this morning when you got up. You had to work on it. And I'm glad you did. I'm glad I did. But let me tell you this. You know what? The Bible does just that. The Bible shows you what you really look like with all the makeup on. 
No, I'm not arguing makeup, and I'm glad that you did. And I, I mean, that's just part of our culture. And I, you know, I like old Bob Jones Sr., the barn door needs paint and painted. I have no problem with it, you know. But what I'm saying is this. That's what the Bible does, and that's why men don't like the Bible, because the Bible shows us what manner of man we really are. When you look into the perfect law of liberty, you see exactly what you are. And we don't like that. And that's what it says there. We, the man went his way so he could forget what manner of man that he was. And the book of Haggai is a great study on human nature. And again, we fall into the trap because we think that Haggai is written back here in 536. Here we live in 2005. We think that there is a difference, and there's no difference. The book of Haggai is a great study on human nature. After all the nation of Israel had been through, and boy, they had been through it. All the bad kings, all the judgment, all the famines, don't even add into the fact that when Shennacherib came down from the north and Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed him and murdered him and killed him and put out Zedekiah's eyes and killed his kids in front of him and hauled him off into chain, Daniel and Ezekiel and all the other captives, all what they had been through. And my friend, as we studied in our process, they had been through it. Now God gives them another chance to build God's temple, to build God's house. And what do they do? They go right back to the same old ways that they were before. That's us. That's human nature. That's human nature. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, another familiar verse, talks about the Old Testament scenarios and the things that took place, and it says all of those things in the Old Testament happened for our examples and our ensamples. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, What know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? What you have of God, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. Haggai chapter 1 and 2 shows why Israel stopped building God's house. And 2,500 years later, it shows why God's people get saved, start going to church, and then stop building the temple of God. And very frankly, that's the wise man and that's the foolish man. The wise master builder that takes heed will understand the importance of building his temple. Now there's a number of things here that I want to look at. And these are practical things. But these are things that are true. I told you I wasn't interested in the theological answer. I want to get down and look inside of me. I want to understand me better. And I'm not preaching this to you. I'm preaching this to me. I want for me to be what God wants me to be. I already know how far I fall short. I have to look and focus on where I'm at. And I'll tell you, when I look at this book, Haggai, and I see the nation of Israel, and I see them to the place where they stop building because of the opposition, they stop building their temple, that temple and that city, I see in a practical application why God's people, why one makes it and why one doesn't. Some kid along the way, some mom or dad along the way, some senior citizen along the way, some boy or girl along the way will simply say, you know what, I'm going to stop building it and I'm going to do something else. And there's a couple of things here that I want to look at, at that why they did that. Now the first thing I want to talk to you about, and this is something that, that you have to get down. The first thing they fail at is they fail to learn from their mistakes. You know what? I never hold anybody, anything against anybody, what they did in life, whenever. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me because I understand all flesh is grass. 
And I understand, by the, except for the grace of God, there goes me. And I never, 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 in dealing with people, ever care. I don't think twice when somebody tells me some horrendous thing in their life. I don't think once about it. Because I know that what God knows is it doesn't matter where you've been. It only matters where you're at and what you want to do right now. And as a child of God, we can't ever get into a place where we hold anything against anybody, whatever they've done in the past or whatever they haven't or whatever the case may be. You know why? Because we all make mistakes. The question I ask is, have you learned from your mistake? That's the deal. That's the issue. Because the more you learn from your mistakes in time, the less mistakes you make. Remember those seven men in the Old Testament I told you about? Remember a while back, it was on a Thursday night, and I even so talked about them on Sunday morning. I told you there were seven men in the Old Testament. I even gave them to you. Noah, Moses, Abraham, Jacob, Samuel, David, and Daniel. And I told you that those seven men are given honorable mention in the Bible to the extent that if you lift up those men and you take them out and study their lives, and boy, it would be an exhaustive study. But if you study those seven men's lives, you will find everything in your life Everything in your life that you need to have in your life to have a working, wonderful, viable relationship with God that will land you with the judgment seat of Christ in perfect peace. But you know something else? You take those same seven men and collectively go through their lives and list all the sins they did, there isn't any sins left they didn't commit. I don't know of any sin in this world that one of those seven men didn't get into at some point in their life. You know what the difference is between them and the guy that don't make it? They learn from their mistakes. Most of us don't. Most of us don't. And when we don't learn from it, then we're doomed to repeat it. I mean, I, you can't. I mean, somebody says, well, David is my hero. He was an adulterer and a murderer. Moses, he's my great leader of Israel. He was a murderer. There isn't any sin when you get into these collective guys' lives and look at it. There isn't any, there isn't any sin left that, they, that wasn't committed. And yet they all wind up being great leaders for God. They all wind up being men who get honorable mention in the Word of God and somebody that God points you to and says, follow their lives. You know why? Because nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. The bottom line is, have you learned from your mistakes? Because a process of growth includes problems, struggles, circumstances, and failure. There isn't a man that ever walked the face of this planet that ever lived his life sinless. The bottom line is, everybody fails. We've all failed. We've all had failures in our life. The question is, did you learn from your past mistakes? That's the question. There's a great principle in the Bible taught in Matthew 6, Luke, all through the Gospels. And it simply says, you forgive other people and God will forgive you. You don't forgive other people, and God won't forgive you. Your forgiveness with your daily relationship with God is based on you forgiving somebody else. In other words, understanding that whoever you look at out there, and whoever you don't like, and whoever you like to talk about, they're no better, and they're no better than you are, and you're no better than they are. Learning from your mistakes. Then there's a second thing, and this is a real killer. This is a real killer. The second thing we see in this great book, is procrastination, putting it off. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, The people said, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Sure it had. Like God had cut the king of Persia's heart, Cyrus, he'd passed the decree. Why, if you study the whole book of Esther, I mean, uh, Queen Esther had something to do with it. God is working behind the scenes here. Yes, it was time. 
But we like to put things off, don't we? Now, the theological answer to that is this. Well, we procrastinate because we're undisciplined. Well, we procrastinate because we are dysfunctional. I like those words. We procrastinate because we have no foundation of the structure of God in our lives. Now, those are the theological terms you read in all their best-selling books on why you procrastinate. But let me bring it right down where we all live. You know why you and I procrastinate? Because we are just not ready to get both feet out of the world yet. That's why. The three most terrible studies you've ever taken in the Bible are Exodus chapter 8, Acts chapter 24, Acts chapter 26. The three most terrible studies that you'll ever take in the Bible. Exodus 8, Acts 24, Acts 26. Now, they're all unsaved men. But there's no difference in human nature or human nature. There's no difference. I don't know what human nature is, but there's no difference. It's a word. It's a word. In Exodus chapter 8, Pharaoh's faced with the word of God and do what's right. When he's faced with it, you know what he says? He says to Moses, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. In Acts chapter 26, King Agrippa is faced with a message from Paul of doing what's right. You know what King Agrippa says? Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And in Acts chapter 24, you got Felix up against the same thing. And you know what he says? Hey, I'll call you when it's convenient for me. Procrastination. The greatest three things that God's people tell God about building their temple when God calls them and gives them the urgency of the hour, they never see where they're at. They'll say, God, I'll do it tomorrow. God, I'll do it when it's convenient. And they'll say, boy, almost, God, I did it. I'm too young right now, Lord. You don't understand. My whole life's ahead of me. Well, I'm excited. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Well, I got friends. I can't give those friends up. Well, I, I, you don't understand, Lord. My family. My family. Somebody else said, well, Lord, you don't understand my career. Somebody else says, well, my friends. Somebody else says, I got plenty of time. Somebody else says, well, it's my girlfriend. Or it's my boyfriend. Somebody else says, it's my job. Or we just come down and say, you know what, God? I'm just too busy. Tomorrow never comes. It's never convenient. and almost never gets here. Almost never gets here. I'm telling you. My Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, that you and I as a child of God are to redeem the time. Redeem the time. Then there's a third thing. And that third thing is self. You know, it was last week when John talked to me about the City Union Mission and we put the thing together, it brought back a flood of memories. One of the great lessons that God's taught me, and God's taught me a number of great lessons, but in a, in a very, just an everyday life. Because like I said, I think about things. I ponder things. And I'll never forget, it must have been 40, 35 years ago. Maybe 25 years ago. It was a long time ago. I remember my first time at a mission. And at the same time, it had worked out that we were invited over to some great big rich guy's house in the, in the church that we were going to, and, and uh, he was a big fat cat in the church, and, you know, he, uh, he ran everything money-wise and politically-wise, and he was the preacher's buddy, you know, because he had the bucks, and, you know, no bucks, no Buck Rogers, and he, he pushed, funded everything, and bought his way into everything, and I'll never forget. 
we went through his house. He had us over for dinner, and he walked us through this absolute incredible mansion. I mean, it looked like Ben Cartwright Ponderosa was a dump. I mean, he had, it must have been 27,000 square feet. I think he had nine levels. It was incredible. And he walked us down here, and there on the wall was his hall of, what he called his hall of fame. And there was this picture with all the great political, religious, fiasco people down through history. He was pictured with the president. There was a picture with Billy Graham. There was a picture of this guy. There was a picture with this politician and this politician and movie stars. And this guy had been around. And it was obvious that he was showing off to us all that he had and all that he did. I mean, his house was immaculate. I mean, his, his, his chair cost more than our house did at the time. He had four or five cars in his garage. His garage was bigger than our house. I would have been happy to live in the doghouse. It was air-conditioned. had three levels. <laughs> David, you'd have loved the house, the doghouse. It was incredible. I don't think it had a basement open. But it was incredible. That next weekend, we went down to the mission. I wasn't preaching. But I, when I don't preach, I usually circulate and talk to the guys. I learned a great lesson that weekend. Because I got talking to an old bum down there that didn't have, his clothes were like rags. He hadn't washed or shaven for weeks. I mean, he was haggard and alcoholic did his work on him, you know, and he was just, he had lost everything he had. And as I sat there and talked to him, he was, I, I, I had to stop and think where I was. Because he was bragging to me about how of all the other bums, he could always find a warm place to sleep. All the other bums, he could find the best cardboard box to live in of anybody. I walked away that night with a great contrast in my life, and I learned something about human nature. It doesn't matter if you live in a million-dollar home and have everything you want, or you're down at the mission in a cardboard box. Men like to brag about themselves of what they can do in either scenario. You would think that a guy that lost everything and was a bum wouldn't see it. No. Why? Self. Self. I had one guy brag to me the fact that he was a drunk and he didn't have anything, but he still bought his own drinks. Self! He says in verse 4, Is it time for you, O ye that dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? You see, what they'd done is they stopped building God's house and left it unfinished. And they turned their attention to their own house. And they focused on their needs. The word sealed houses there, we get our word sealing from that. It means that they got roofs on their house, but God's house doesn't have a roof on it. Now, there's two great principles here. And it simply is this. Principle number one is never have your church building in better shape than your church people. I don't know how many times since we've started this church I have been asked by some preacher of whatever when we're going to get a building. You know why? Because a building is status in the day and age that we live in. When you have a building, you got to have steeples because the poem doesn't go right. There's the church, there's the steeple, open the door and there's all the people. Without the steeple, it doesn't work. 
You got to have grandioso pipe organs and all kinds of stuff, and you got to have this and that. And when you and the, and the mindset I get from them is that when you get all of that, then God finally shows up. <laughs> See, God's not here today. He's running around, floating around over here, looking for when we get stained glass windows and a big people. You know what I'm saying? Those big things, and we would get all of that, and we get all that stuff. Then God say, "Okay, now." Old paths is on the right path. Get the new path, get the new look from the steeple, and look at all the people. And then God comes down, and we got a church. Let me tell you something. You know, the greatest church building in the world. Somebody says, Well, well, so and so church grows 1,200 people. That doesn't make it a church. Ringling Brothers had 2,000. <laughs> Harlem Globetrotters came to town, they had 4,000. Somebody says, well, what's the difference between this church and this church? One's a three-ring circus, and this one's only a two-ring. Crowd don't make a church. They really don't. God help me never to have any church. And you know what? I'm not against the church building. I just don't want to put that more important than you guys. What good is it if we have a great building, but you can't raise your family right? What good is it if we have a great building, but you're so indifferent to the Word of God, the things of God, that you could care less about people dying and going to hell? You know what? God wants us to give a building. He'll have to give us one. We didn't have any place when he gave us this. And he just dropped it in our lap. He called her on the phone and says, hey, we'd like to talk about renting your place. She says, oh, I'd love to have a church. He came down and talked about it. She had the contract ready to go. God gave us a place. I'll stay here. But see, the mindset is, oh, no, you got to have a building. If you don't have your own building, you're not a real church. Well, I don't care what anybody thinks because the church has never been a building. The church is the people that are in it. And having some building that costs $50 million with shadow people on the inside is a terrible thing. Well, I'd rather take that money and stay in the here for the rest of our lives, buy some place. But if we ever do build a building, I'm going to tell you right now, it will not, it'll look like a... Safeway Warehouse. It'll be functional. It'll be what we need. It'll be designed for the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God and training up people. And it not will be something that, that Jesus will come back to with the second coming of Christ and find. <laughs> He'll have to look it up in the phone book if he's going to find it. You know why? Because the most beautiful part of any church are you folks. You're what needs to be built. I don't need to spend my time running around the world proving to everybody well, how much I know about this and that. I give my, my, whole, my whole life and being has to come down to building the church right here, you. Because if that fails, it's all failed. And you never want to have your church building. I get so sick of it. Somebody says, brother, when are you going to, have, when are you, when are you going to get a building? Oh, any minute now. It's going to be coming down the road here and being a tractor trailer. <laughs> Bigger out of the road, we're going to put it right where you're standing. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> then our second great concept. Don't take better care of your earthly house than you do God's house. Now, let me just say this to you. You know me. Most of you have been in my house. If you haven't, you will be. we got a nice house. I'm not saying don't have a nice house. I'm not saying to be the right kind of Christian, you've got to live in a cheese box. I'm not saying that. I think that everybody has to have, 
you know, your own dreams and you want to have a nice house. Your wife deserves it. Your, your kids should have a nice environment. I'm not saying any. Don't ever go out of here thinking, well, he's just against big houses or he's against this or that. He just thinks, no, no, no. All I'm saying is wherever you're at and whatever God, it's between you and God. I don't care. All I'm saying is with whatever you got, don't get it more important than God. That's all. Just don't. I think you ought to have a nice house. Both my kids have nice houses. We have a nice house. Most of you have a nice house. I'm not fighting it. I think it's a great thing to have a, a home that is a house that is fun. I'm just saying it all comes back to self. To self. To self. Because that Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. What's it profitable for, Bob? Doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished. You know what all the new Bibles say? Thoroughly equipped. Well, how is it even in the concept that a doctrine is taught all? Don't you know that your body is the temple of God? Don't you know that in the Old Testament it was a temple of God? Don't you know when you study the tabernacle and Solomon's temple and the millennial temple that, that those temples had furnishings in them? They weren't equipped. They weren't thoroughly equipped. They were thoroughly furnished. Thoroughly, not thoroughly. Thoroughly because it starts on the inside. Not thoroughly. It's T-H-R-O, not T-H-O-R. Just two words backwards to change the whole doctrine in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Your body's the temple. Holy Spirit of God lives, lives inside you. You know what you do when you get into the Word of God? You know what you do when you build that temple and you don't stop building that temple? I told you before, your whole life and my whole life as a child of God is to find out the things that God loves and put them in your life. And by doing that, you furnish that temple that, with things that bless the Holy Spirit of God, minister to the Lord. And if you don't, Ephesians chapter 4 says, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. How do you think it'd go next time my mother-in-law came to visit our house? And I love my mother-in-law. Mother-in-laws are good. Sandy told me to tell you that this morning. <laughs> I love mother-in-laws. I love your mother-in-law. She's a sweetie. But I love my mother-in-law. She comes to visit every once in a while. And I love her. How do you think it'd go next time she, she got up the door there, we picked her up at the airport, brought her home. We said, Grandma, we are so happy you're here. Oh, we're just so happy you're here. Everybody was in the house, and we said, and the little kids run around, you know, Jamie and uh, uh, Jamie, Maddie and uh, Mackenzie run around, you know, everybody's happy. And we say, Grandma, we just have a nice little dinner, you know, and, and Grandma's here. Oh, Grandma's here. And say, Grandma said, Grandma, you look tired. Would you like to go to your room and kind of relax and go to bed and get a good night? Oh, yeah, I'd like to. Well, come on. Well, I start going up. I go down. Take her into the, open the door there and bring her in there. There's a garage, cement floor. Junk back here. Stuff that you'll trip over and break your neck. Set her down here and say, Grandma, we're so glad you're here. Enjoy your stay. Get some rest. See ya. Walk out the door. And as Grandma's sitting there looking around at everything and saying, well, there's an old dog pen over here. And, and where am I supposed to sit? Where am I supposed to sleep? Look at all the junk back here. Old broken lawnmowers. And, and what is that? And this over here and this over that. And just as she's trying to formulate the plan, Grandma learned a great lesson. The light's on a timer, and it's only nine minutes, and it's off now. 
And Grandma says, oh, I hate it when it does that. Because <laughs> she's walking around in there, and it's cold. she got her bare feet, and her feet cold. She's filing around, can't find anything. It's, and you know what? You think the next morning you go down and open the door up there and say, Grandma, how was your night? It ain't going to work the way you think it is, trust me. We look at that and we think that's funny. We think we never do that. You know, we wouldn't do that to Grandma, but we do it to God all the time in our lives because He living inside you and the furnishings you provide for Him are based on your relationship of building that house. Some of God's people put him down in the old cold basement, make him sit on a block of concrete, make him sleep on the floor, and then feed him all kinds of junk, and then wonder why he's grieved. Self. I'm not saying he shouldn't have nice things. I need you to think you ought to have a nice car. I think you ought to have a nice house. I think you ought to have nice clothes. I think you ought to have all, but they ought to be because God gave them to you, not because you threw God out the window and got yourself, self, self, self in the way. I'm all for it. You'll never see me looking around saying anything, brother. Hey, you know what? As long as you take care of God in your life, God will take care of you. Because, you see, when you don't see this thing and you get procrastination and then you get self, then it leads to the next thing, and that's a great concept of the fact that there's no satisfying the flesh. Look at verse 6. He says, you have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink but you're not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put into a bag with holes. You know what? Let's be honest this morning. The Bible says confess your faults one to another. Let's do it. Don't you just go nuts when that lottery is up around $450 million? I don't, but Barb buys the tickets all the time. <laughs> Say, honey, hi, Doze. Hi, Dozel. The Christians are coming over tonight. Hide them. And hide mine, too, while you're at it, will you? No, just kidding. You. But you know what? Who hasn't dreamed of that? Who hasn't drove down the road and saw the big casino billboard with some big smiley face lady up there with a big smile on her face holding a check. I won $10,000 at casino. Let me tell you the truth. It'll never work. You know why it won't ever work? Because if you're a child of God, your whole life is built on a principle in 1 Timothy 6, 6 that says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. You know what happens if you'd win a million dollars? I'll tell you this is the truth. Years ago, there was a big fat cat preacher across the country, still in existence today. So if I told you who he was, you know it. I'm not going to talk about anybody. But uh, he was in Kansas City here, and I was in a little meeting there, and he was there, and I heard him talking with another big fat cat preacher, and they were talking back and forth. And the one big fat cat preacher said, the other big fat cat preacher, he says, Hey, he says, I heard you won, I heard you raised $10 million last week. And the big fat cat preacher said, yeah, we did. And he says, man, that's great. And he said, he said you got to be happy as can be. You know what he said? Honest to God. You know what he said? He said, well, yeah, you'd think so. But you know what? That just means i got to raise another $10 million next week. You see, here's the thing. If you won a million dollars tomorrow, your lifestyle would go up to the lifestyle of a millionaire. That's why right now, whatever you make a year, you live within that means. And... You live sometimes, we all do, from paycheck to paycheck, and you, 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 know, you live within those means. But you suddenly 
cast into the limelight now where you spend $100 bills like you spend $10 bills right now? And you're in another whole level. You're in another whole world. You start buying things that cost $50,000 when you only bought them when they cost $5,000. You know what you do? You just lift yourself to another whole level that you need more money to sustain that level. And it just brings about more worry and more. Now, let's face it. It's a problem I'd like to try to work through. <laughs> just... God, I'll give it a shot if you just let me try. You know what the bottom line is? If God could trust any of you with a million dollars, he'd give it to you. So what does that say about you? Well, don't get mad. He didn't give me a million dollars either. Because we think it would solve all of our problems. No. No, just like the big fat cat preacher said today, the big fat cat preacher, well, yeah, I raised 10 million last week. Now I've got to raise 10 million more. You'd get into a lifestyle that you would have everything that you ever wanted, but you'd have to have more money to maintain that lifestyle. And you know what? I found this out, and this is true in life. You can go up here, and you can go as long as you keep going higher, you're happy. But when you go below what you had before, you're not happy anymore. Why? Because you're not content with just godliness. You don't see it as great gain. The unsaved world sees it, and they never figure out Matthew 16, 26. It says, you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul. I mean, what good is what Donald Trump's got and what happened last night and made the news media? You know how many weddings there were yesterday? There was probably in America 50,000 weddings. You know how many made frontline news? One. You know why? Because it's a major fat cat guy. He got more money than he knows what he do with. And what is all that going to do when he's been burning in hell for 150 million years if he's not saved? And I don't know if he is or isn't. I'm just saying as a principle. You see, it says you have so much but you bring in little. You eat, but you not, have not enough. Your mother used to say your eyes are bigger than your belly. We go out to eat, and I want nine pieces of chicken instead of four. Then she'd get mad at me because I could only eat four. You think you want more, but it's not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe you, but you're not warm. And you know what? It all comes down to this. You know what life is on planet Earth? Do you know what life is on planet earth without God, the word of God, and the concept of God in your life? It's the greatest verse in all the Bible for it. It's a bag with holes. Life's a journey. We go down life picking up all the glittery things we can. Get all you can, can all you get. I mean, you just get everything you can. You know what? You throw it in your little bag. You throw it in your little bag. Oh, I got this. I got that. You get that. And then you go down through life, smack the judgment, meet God face to face, hold up your bag, and it's full of holes. You lost everything you had. That's life without God. I'm not saying you shouldn't have nice things. I'm saying there is no satisfying our flesh. And to live godliness with contentment is great gain. I want to read you something here. Remember a couple of weeks ago? A couple of weeks ago I gave you a, uh, a message on vision. Marion gave me this. This is what you got today. This is what you're up against today. This is where it's at today. This is what this is this is the greatest example I know what it is. Watch this. Daily devotional from a periodical called Called to Conquer. Today's scripture reading, Habakkuk 2, 1 through 3. Key verse, Habakkuk 2, 2. Now this is 
where we studied a couple of weeks ago about laying out the vision. Remember that thing? Write it out, make it plain, so here run with it, understand it, and here it comes. This is the 20th century Laodicean verse that you're going to get in Christianity. Write the vision and make it plain on tables <clears throat> that he may run who reads it. God, I cannot do that. I do not have enough money. Lord, are you really serious about this? Have you ever said these things? Has God spoken to you about starting a business or launching some great enterprise? Why are you sitting here looking at your finances? You never start with finances. You start with a dream. First thing that we've done is change vision now to a dream. Watch this. Forget your doubts and questions. Go back to your dream. Start talking about it to other people. And above all, write it down. Put it down in simple terms so it will get past your head and into your heart. The more you talk about it, declare it. Write it down. The sooner the money will come. Now we went from the vision to a dream, which is now money. Money always follows vision. If God spoke it, then you start speaking it too. Share the dream with people who also can receive it and run with it. Then God will see that the money comes your way. Today's prayer. Jesus. Jesus. Even though the dream does not seem possible. Oh. We need a little music, guys. A little background music here. Jesus. Even though the dream does not seem possible. I believe that you will bring it to pass. Show me who will receive the dream, and I will make it plain to them. And Jesus, in advance, I thank you for the capital that I need. That is where the Christian world is at today. That is where we are at. We've lost the concept. It's all about self. The vision of God isn't for your own personal glorful needs for your own flesh so you can start. The vision of God was God's what God wanted you to do for Him. Oh, what a great, what a great contrast to the old hymn. 418 in your hymnal that says, Must I go and empty-handed, thus my Redeemer meet? Not one day of service give Him, Lay no trophy at his feet. Oh, the years in sinning wasted, could I but recall them now, I would give them to my Savior, to his will I'd gladly bow. Oh, ye saints, arise, be earnest, up and work while yet tis day. Ere the night of death overtake thee, strive for souls while still ye may. Must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior so? Not one soul with which to greet him. Must I empty-handed go? Yes, my friend, many of us will. Many of us will simply because of the fact that versus this is the problem today. And I'm telling you, there is no satisfying the flesh. Then the next thing. We're almost finished here. The next thing. When you stop building, you never stop learning from your mistakes. You become lazy and worldly. You become self-focused. It's all about your flesh. And the next thing, 
goes is you lose your whole perspective of where God is at and what he's doing. Israel did. So do we. That's why some make it and some don't. The reason why you got men and women in the world today that are saved women, they're going to go to heaven, that are going to lose everything they got the dumbest seat of Christ is because they have lost their perspective. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 3. Oh, this is a great. Hey, Pam, here you are. Remember that Thursday night you asked me a question? She asked me the question, why is it that some people just can't see this thing? Why is it? How come so many people just can't see the truth and get mad about the truth? And she, we talked about it, and I said, come Sunday and you shall hear. Here it is. Chapter 2, verse 3. Here's the answer. Here's the answer to it all. Chapter 2, verse 3. Who was left among you that saw this house in its first glory when Solomon built it? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? You know what he's saying? He's saying, what's wrong with you folks? Don't you remember the way it was when Solomon built his temple? Don't you see by comparison that you guys think that this is okay to do God's house this way when there is a record, a historical fact of the way that it was that God wanted it when God blessed it? Can't you see that versus what we got now is no comparison? Now that's the church's problem today. The church has nothing real to compare the phony stuff with. We've stopped building God's temple on a national program around the world. And when you stop building that, you land right here. Do you know what the church and the preachers and the Christians were like in the greatest period in church history the world has ever seen? When he's talking to the nation of Israel, he's going back to Israel's greatest moment. He's going back to 1000 A.D., when Solomon on the throne and David on the throne brought the nation of Israel to the greatest apex in the history of the world and Solomon built the temple that was seven years in building with a cost of billions and billions and billions and on the day of that dedication, 20,000 sacrificial animals. I mean, it's unbelievable. And here they are, piddling around, can't even finish this temple saying to themselves, that's good enough. Let's turn our attention to what we want to do. And Haggai says, my God, man, can't you see what it was in compared to what it is? And it's nothing what God wants it to be. I'll tell you something. The average Christian today doesn't understand what the great church period was like during the Philadelphian church period. Oh, they understand all the sports stacks. Oh, they understand the great hitties. They got who got the golden oldies. They know who got the, all the idols and all the things down there. Brother, when it comes to the greatest period in church history, the churches, the preachers, the Christians, that what it was like, the greatest period in the history of the world from 1600 to 1900 when three quarters of the world were saved. Because of that, they have no comparison. And they think what they've got today, an unfinished building with all kinds of stuff about vision and money with nothing to do with God. They have nothing to compare it with to see what is real. I like to listen to people talk, man. I'll tell you what. I go back there, boy, and I talked about this Thursday night a little bit. I think about old guys like old David Brainerd. 29 years old, <clears throat> called to be a missionary in the American Indian. Struggled out there, died of consumption, died of malnutrition, died of the elements because he spent literally his whole life in the Pennsylvania woods in deep snowdrifts with fever, praying for the American Indian, praying for God to open up a door. And he died a 29-year-old man, broken and busted, never won one convert to Christ. 
Somebody, I've even heard guys say, what a waste. What a waste. Oh, read on in his life a little bit. He left a journal called the Journals of David Brainerd. You can still buy it today. And that was that little journal that Sheldon Jackson and, and William Carey read who got their lives so challenged for missions that they went to India and literally burn out their lives winning millions of people to Christ because of what David Brainerd did. We think of Adonai and Judson in Burma, 57 years, buried two wives, all of his kids on the mission field. We think of, the, of, of, of Dr. Livingston. We always hear the little <coughs> cliche, <coughs> Dr. Livingston, I presume. Dr. Livingston was a medical doctor. He was a missionary, went into the deepest part of Africa. Nobody heard from him for two and three years. The New York Times sent a reporter, Stanley, to find Dr. Livingston. Stanley went to Africa, went down through Africa, and finally in a little tribe in the middle of nowhere sees this white man coming out of that hut walks over and says the famous line, Dr. Livingston, I presume. And it was. 56 years in Africa. When he went there, there wasn't any saved people. When he left, there was, when he died, there wasn't any heathen. He made such an impact on the African natives in that land that when he died, they carried his body all the way back to England where he's buried in Westminster Abbey. But before they did, they cut out his heart and they buried it in Africa because that's where his heart was. I wonder if we die today and they'd cut our heart out where we'd bury it. You see the difference? <clears throat> Peter Cartwright, old frontiersman preacher, guy about five foot ten, stocky, lost an eye in a knife fight, got saved, preached the gospel up and down all across the West. He'd get up there and get preaching to a group of old wild guys out there and they start making fun of him <coughs> and saying things. <coughs> He'd stop the service, go out, take the guy outside, beat the tar out of him, come back in and finish the sermon. Old David Brainerd lived. He lived during the time of Rousset, Voltaire, and David Hume, the great intellectual minds of Europe that destroyed everything about the Bible. Sheldon Jackson... <coughs> 1834 to 1909, traveled a million miles in 50 years, established 886 churches. In one year, he wrote 29,000 miles and started 23 churches, had over 200,000 converts before the automobile. Samuel Miles called to preach the gospel. He gathered around him James Richard, Francis Robbins, Harvey Loomis, Gordon Hall, and Luther Rice. They be called, they called the Haystack Group. They met every day around a haystack in central, uh, uh, right here in, in Indiana and in, in Missouri, and they prayed around that haystack asking God to, for the heathen, and they all became great missionaries. The great George Whitfield who literally impacted this world in its inception. It was because of George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards that our founding fathers put God in the Constitution. Go up to Boston Commons right now, that place up there that is so worldly and so filthy and so vile and so anti-God and so everything against God. You go down to the Boston Commons in that little park down there and you'll find a little plaque about that big. And it says in that little plaque, on this day in 1770, whenever it was, Whitfield, George Whitfield preached, and 30,000 people came to know Christ. I stood in the pulpit in Massachusetts, in the very pulpit where Jonathan Edwards preached in his church. I stood there, and I looked in that church back in the 1700s when he preached his famous message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and people wept and cried, and the whole town was saved. And then I pulled out underneath the table the pastor's sermon for the previous Sunday that he had left there, and it was a piece of watered-down junk. As I walked out, he came in. I introduced myself, and I said, I just wanted to come and see 
the great place where Jonathan Edwards preached his great message, sinners in the hands of an angry God. You know what he said to me? He said, kind of chuckled and said, yes, it's a shame that that's the only message he's remembered for. Well, it ain't a shame to the people that got saved that day. And in the same but the hundreds of thousands of men who've been transformed and women who have heard that story and, and changed their lives before. No, it's only foolish today in a liberal world with liberal churches with liberal Bibles that don't preach anything about God anymore. Well, they've lost their perspective. They've lost their perspective. He says, Who among you can remember the old glory by comparison? I like to hear people talk. Somebody says, uh, they say, oh, well, he's really a good man. And I'll say, compared to who? Stalin? Well, that's really a great church. Compared to what? Mayo Taisung? Father Moon? Harry Krishna? Well, he's done a really good job. Compared to who? You see, people don't know today. They don't even know what to look for in a church. They have no comparison. They're like the nation of Israel. They quit building the temple of God. It's not being built now. They have no idea what, what a preacher ought to be, what a church ought to be. They think because it's got a lot of people that must be good, God must be there. Hey, I'm telling you something. I'm talking about a time where your Bible was translated in 1,200 languages around this world before 1900. There's confusion in America. Confusion in Christianity. Well, right now in Washington... <clears throat> We can't, in our own capital, agree on what the founding fathers meant when they wrote the Constitution just 220-some years ago. We can't find anybody who can understand what they meant. And I'm telling you, this country's been almost 120 years now without a Bible. It dumped its Bible in 1883 with the Southern Bass Convention in Sarasota, Florida. And from that point on, America has spent the last 120 years without an absolute standard of the Word of God. And therefore, they have been taught no history. They have no heritage. They don't know where they come from. They don't know where they're going. And they certainly don't know where they're at. And they're confused. I'm not saying they're not good people. I'm not saying they don't want to do what's right. I'm saying they need a church and they need a preacher and they need a Bible that will say, this is what it means and this is what it says. We've lost that. We don't even know what to look for. We don't have a clue. We have nothing to compare it with. He says, who is here today that saw the great house, the temple of Israel in Solomon's time? Oh, can't you make the comparison? And I say this to you this morning. Who is here that can understand because of your heritage, because of your lineage, where we've come from the greatest period of time that defined what the church is? by the greatest preacher that ever walked this planet. That's the problem. And the last thing, and I'm finished. You lose sight of the day that's coming for you and for me. I told you this Thursday night, Israel's great day of judgment is called the day of Jacob's trouble when they get judged in the tribulation period. Terrible time. The church age period, their day is the day of Jesus Christ, and that's where we stand before God, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and give an account. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it is the terror of the Lord. The terror of the Lord. He says in chapter 2, verse 6, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once 
in a little while. Turn over to some time when you've got a rainy afternoon and you want to study out that little while seven times in John chapter 16, verse 16. Seven times for the seven periods of the church. A little while. A little while. Church age. And I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations. And the desire of all nations shall come. Christ. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. I'm going to tell you something, Christian. I'm talking to me and my am to you. There's a day coming that's going to rock our world. My job is to get you ready for it. I'm not mad at you. I'll cut you so much slack. All I want to do is help you. I see this thing. Most of you see it. Not all of you. And even if I don't see it, you've got to know it deep down in your heart. You've got to know that there's a day coming when God's going to balance the David Brainers out with the Christians that live today. You know there's going to be a day when God's going to bright out the, the George Whitfields out with the Christians that are so lackadaisical today. You don't think God's going to let those men give their lives in blood and die at young ages and burn out their life for him and let you and I just live our lives the way we want to and all go okay when we get home to heaven. No, he says, I'm going to rock this earth. I'm going to shake the heavens. Church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 16, 7 and 18, he says there, that's the church that we're living in now. He says, because I sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and with raiment, that it mayest be clothed. And then he says, And the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You know what he said to the nation of Israel, the last thing he said? He said in chapter 1, verse 7, the last verse I read this morning, our opening text, Consider your ways. Hey, I'm for you. I'm for you. I'm going to promise you right now, I'll give you everything I've got. I'll give you every moment of time you need. I'll do everything in the world. I will do everything in the world to help you get to the judgment seat of Christ and be the best you can be. I'll help you husbands be better wives. I'll help you wives be better husbands. I'll help you be better parents. I'll help the kids be better. Whatever. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll teach you whatever it takes. We'll have time in the Word of God. I'll give you whatever it takes, whatever it needs. The bottom line is, your job is to make sure you finish building that temple. That's all. I'll do my job, you do yours, and I promise you God will do his. And where I may fail you or you may fail me, God will never fail either one of us. And that's the bottom line. And that's what the book of Haggai is all about. It is simply about the nation of Israel. God gave them the chance to rebuild that temple. And they just couldn't learn from their mistakes. They go right back into the same old thing, and I can't knock them. I do the same thing, and so do you. That's why the Bible says we're laborers together. That's why it takes all of us together. That's why you hold me up, I'll hold you up tomorrow. That's why you cover my back, I'll cover yours. That's why you, we, we, we take whatever we have and we just say, God, use me. I'll start right there. Just use me there. I'm not asking anybody to be a great theologue of mine. I'm not asking anybody to be a great preacher. I'm just saying, look around you and say, God, I have this in my hand. I have this in my hand. I am this. I have this ability. I'll just take this and I'll start right here. And just use me from here. That's all I ask. God will fill in the rest. <clears throat> but that's why the church is the way it is. We have nothing to compare it with today that's real. And the real, when we do hear it, scares us. Because we're so shallow and so fleshy and so self and so selfish to ourselves. But the bottom line is my